Ken comes up and goes, hey, by the way, I just learned that just as soon as the Marshalls finally get the four data ready, then Apple will come out with five data. Uh, yeah, see, that one, that one killed, Ken. Good job. Thanks. It, it's all about delivery, and obviously I haven't got it. So for those of you who are visiting today, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just really grateful that you are with us. Uh, we're in a series that we're calling True North, and the whole point of this series is to recognize that we live in a world that is rapidly changing. I mean, things like values are constantly in flux. Uh, definitions about things like marriage or gender are, are being challenged. Uh, you know, even social norms and ways that we interact with one another are constantly being updated. And within this, we as Christ followers are going, okay, how do we follow God in the midst of this? And, 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 and we have questions for God like, what does it mean to actually love my neighbor when our values are so radically different? What does love look like in that context? Or, God, what would you have me do in this situation? Where do you want me to expend my energy? What does it look like for me to follow you in this world? And as we talked about last week, or a couple weeks ago, when sailors go out on the ocean and they find themselves in a similar situation to how we find ourselves, where they are away from land, they don't have the, the regular um, you know, monuments that they can look to to be able to navigate by. We talked about the fact that they need to have some sort of a fixed reference point that they can point to and that they can begin to orient themselves around. And for sailors here in the north, that would probably be the north star typically or the sun. This is a fixed reference point, a heavenly body that they can point to and from that begin to extrapolate, here's where I'm at and here's where I'm going. And in the same way, we as Christ followers, we need a fixed reference point. And that fixed reference point is our Father, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is unchanging even though our lives are constantly changing who is his holy other, you know, set apart, is not affected by the, the, the world that we live in, by sin and shame, even though we recognize that we ourselves are, are always being affected by sin and shame and it tosses us back and forth, sends us into hiding, sometimes sends us out to try to garner approval from other people and get likes. And so two weeks ago, we looked at what is to us a normative passage, something that is really the foundation of this whole conversation that we're going to have over the next two months. And that is what King Solomon said in, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. He commanded us, he encouraged us, he exhorted us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your being, every part of you, and don't rely or lean on your own understanding because it's limited. And in everything you do, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, submit to him, orient your lives around him. And what will he do? He'll make your paths straight. Now that sounds great. We're all for that. But how? How do we bring a holy God into our imperfect present? How do we begin to orient our lives around a, a God that transcends our reality, that creates time and space? He doesn't, he feels at times very, very distant. And so how do we bring him into our reality so that we can even begin to orient our lives around him? That's what we're going to explore this morning. Well, I can tell you that for sailors, 
when they find themselves out on the open ocean and they look up and they see either the sun or they see the north star shining in the night sky, they, they have a tool that can help them bring the stars or these heavenly bodies down into their reality so that they can begin to, to see where to go and begin to recognize where they're at. And for them, the tool that they use is called a sextant. This is Don's sextant. I think that he's owned this longer than I've been alive. But the whole point of a sextant, just so you can... I, I never had, had never held one before, and I'm very excited to have it in my hand, and hopefully I won't break it. Um, my dad always says, don't play with stuff you can't afford to replace, so I won't play with it too much. You've got an eyepiece that you look through, and then you've got a lens right here in the front, and you want to orient that on the horizon in the direction that you think you want to go. And then you see this little rocker bar down here. This as you slide it back and forth, actually controls this mirror up on the top. And this mirror is pointed towards the heavens. And I would try to line that mirror up either with the sun or the north star. Now, obviously, if I'm looking at the sun, I don't want that shining in my eye, so then I've got some lenses that I can stick in front of there so that you don't give yourself cataracts. Um, and so you, you begin to orient the true north, the north star or the sun through the mirror and it gets imposed over the horizon. And once you line those two things up and it's in exactly the right position, then comes the fun part because now at the bottom it's giving you a reading, a number. And Don said, this is the part that takes the longest. You do this in just a couple of seconds, then you spend the next few hours doing the longhand math to try to figure out latitude and longitude. It shows you where you are and by that you can begin to get a bearing of where you want to go. He said, now it's easy because you, with a computer, you just take these numbers, you plug them in, and it instantly spits it out. He said, before, it would take us three or four hours to figure these things out. So this is what a sailor uses to navigate on the open ocean. This is what a sailor uses to bring the heavenly bodies down into their reality to begin to navigate by it. Of course, this begs the question, well, what's our sextant? What do we have to be able to bring our unchanging triune God down into our reality so that we can even hope to begin to orient our lives around them. And I would suggest that we actually do have one, one that God has given us, and it's called the Bible. And I realize that the moment that I say the Bible, some of you check out. Some of you start going, oh, here we go, it's that, it's that conversation, right? Pastor Eric is going to tell us to pray more and read our Bible more, and I'm going to leave here. I'm already preparing my heart for a guilt trip. I ask you to stay with me, because it's not that conversation today. I simply want us to recognize what it is we have and to begin wrestling with how we can utilize it to help us orient our lives around our true north, our triune God. But I'll admit this, if your perspective, because some of us look at the Bible, we look at God's word and we don't see a sextant. We see maybe like an old fashioned Thomas guide. I was honestly trying to track one down so I could hold it in my hand today. Nobody that I talked to has a Thomas guide. I'm sure there's like, yeah, I know. I knew the moment I said that, the white ones would be like, we got three, you know. Fipper, you have mine? Where is it? Oh, it's in the car. Truly helpful. No, I'm good. I love you. <laughs> okay, okay, here's the thing. I mean, think about a Thomas guide for a second. Some of you have held on to it, even though your phones will tell you down to the like, foot where you're at, and it will give you real-time updates. But you always hold on to this, this old book of maps, most of which you will never need because you never will go there. 
And even if you were to go there, you, don't, you can't fully trust it because this was printed quite a while ago. And it gets updated constantly, so it may not really have any bearing on reality as it is now. And if that's the case, then I can understand why you, you would just you, you hold on to it just in case your battery dies on your phone. But you never really pull it out because, quite honestly, it may not be that up to date. It may not have any bearing on where you find yourself walking in the here and now. Or maybe you don't look at it like a Thomas guide. Maybe you look at it more as an instruction manual, right? Kind of like what you get when you buy a car and they give you that massive book of here's where all of the pieces are. And and you know you're going to hold on to it because at some point you may need to find out where the dipstick is and where to put... I I just had to pull mine out the other day to go, okay, where do I put steering fluid in here? I don't want to put it in the wrong thing. I've done that a few times before. Made that mistake. I'm not... I'm not mechanically inclined, which is why I love having guys like Jeff in my life, because I can lean on Mr. Blum and say, okay, help me out here, right? But you look at it like that. It's an instruction manual, and we all hold on to our instruction manuals on the chance that you might need it, but none of us like reading it. It's not like we sit there at night in bed while our sweetie's laying next to us, and we're just kind of thumbing through the instruction manual because it's so riveting No, we keep that thing in our car just in case we need it. Or maybe some of you look at it more like a rule book. When you were going to begin playing a sport and the coach hands you this book and go get to know it, memorize it so that you don't break the rules. And it shows us how to do things and how not to do things. But I'll be honest with you. If you look at it like a Thomas guide or an instruction manual or a rule book, then I can completely understand why you have very little interest in breaking that thing open and reading it on a regular basis. Because who wants to read a bunch of rules that will simply shine a light on how messed up you are and how far you're falling short? Who is interested in reading the the instruction manual that's full of these words that you don't understand and doesn't seem to have a whole lot of bearing? Who wants to read about times and places and people that aren't living anymore? Because it has very little bearing on how to interact with your friends at school or how to deal with that guy at work that it just continues to get under your skin or how to really deal with that addiction that you've been wrestling with and you're terrified people will find out about. So if that's your perspective on Scripture, then I completely understand why you have very little interest in cracking this thing between Sundays. But i got good news for you. Because this is so much more than simply a Thomas guide. This is so much more than a, a rule book or a book of instructions. Granted, there are instructions in here. It is full of wisdom from our creator God who designed us to be his representatives. And throughout this, he shows us what it means to live as his sons and his daughters in this reality. And it's also full of rules. It's got rules in it, but not legalistic rules. Simply, this is what it looks like to be my representatives because I've created you to be in relationship with me. But I would suggest to you this morning that this actually is more like a sextant. This is a God-breathed tool to bring our triune God down into our existence, into our reality in the here and now, so that we can begin to orient our lives around him. God created this. He spoke it into people's hearts. They wrote it down. And throughout the Bible, it is full of his heart, 
his interactions with people. We see time and again the way that he dealt with people in the midst of their realities. We see the reasons for why God created in the first place. Why he spoke us into existence and took the time to mold us and breathe his spirit into us so that we could be his representatives. We see the way that sin has shaped and and fractured the relationship he created for us. And yet we also see time and again throughout scripture the ways he pursued us and continues to pursue us. First through the Israelites saying, you're going to be my representatives, a holy priesthood, a nation set apart to be my representative, to represent my heart to the rest of the world. And when they couldn't do it adequately, then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to walk amongst us, and to model for us what it looks like to be representatives of God. Furthermore, Jesus came specifically to deal with the very thing that separates us from God, namely sin and shame. And we see throughout Scripture, it points, especially in the book of Revelation, but elsewhere, this this idea that we have hope beyond simply the, the momentary struggles that we have, that there is something that we're looking forward to where the, the brokenness of this world, the warping of sin no longer gets the last word and we will get to spend eternity with our Father in heaven. That is what this points to. And so I suggest to you that this is a spiritual sextant that helps bring not just the mind of our Father God, but His heart into our existence so that we can begin to know His heart and it is a tool that He uses to begin to shape our hearts. Because let's not forget, He created us to be His representatives, to reflect His heart to the people we come in contact with the moment we step foot out of church. And so this is a tool that our Father God has given us so that we can get to know His heart and so that we can be shaped into His heart. And if you have any question of whether or not this is important and this needs to be normative in our lives, all you need to do is look at the way that Jesus treated Scripture. Because if there was ever anybody in history that did not need a tool to get in touch with God's heart, it was Jesus. I mean, think about the fact that he was the very word of God incarnate. You go back to John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word, the log, the, this divine logos that, through which God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and through which he continues to hold it all together, the word of God became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And Jesus himself told his disciples, listen guys, if you've seen me, then you've already seen the Father because I'm a reflection of his heart. So if there was anybody in history that did not need scripture to help him tap into God's heart, did not need to hide this word in his heart because he was an embodiment of the word, then it's Jesus. And yet, look at the way that Jesus lived his life. Read any of the gospels and you will quickly see that Jesus used God's word, Scripture, written down to shape his life. His teachings were seeped in Scripture. So much of what he taught, he spoke out of God's word. He was constantly spending time in it. He was familiar with it. When he would walk into a synagogue, he knew where to open up and he would point directly to it and find himself in it and point to it and say, this is what I've come to do. Today you see this being fulfilled in front of you. When he needed to defend himself, he pointed to God's word as the foundation. 
Time and again, we see that Jesus was not only familiar with God's word, but that his life was shaped by it. And there's probably no better place for us to look at that than in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, grab one. If you don't have one, there's probably in the seat back in front of you. And open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Just to give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. This takes place right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right before this, Jesus has gone to the Jordan River because his cousin John is baptizing people there. And Jesus shows up and says, listen, John, I need you to baptize me. And John goes, I'm not worthy to even untie your sandals. And he says, "That, that may be true, but I still want you to baptize me. And so he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And as he comes out, we see the the Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove coming down and resting on Jesus. Because remember, although he was God in, in human flesh, he had emptied himself of his God power in order to be fully human. He'd he'd taken that part of himself off so he could enter into our reality. And so there at the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit comes down, the same Spirit that's given to you and me, comes down and rests upon him. And throughout the rest of his ministry, it's that Spirit working in him that enables him to do the things that he does. And then we hear the Father speak a blessing over his Son. This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. And in that moment, it's this beautiful picture of the triune God connected around the person and the purpose of Jesus. And then on the heels of that, we come to Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus, directly after that, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's a no duh, right? Obviously, I would be hungry after 40 minutes of fasting. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. So the first temptation of Satan is not disobey God. The first temptation of Satan, the way that he gets at Jesus is the same way that he tried to get at Adam and Eve. Remember back there in the garden when Adam and Eve... We're sitting there in this paradise that God had created and in comes the serpent and rather than pointing at the fruit and says, you need to eat that, instead he points to God and said, did he really say not to touch that? You're not going to die if you touch that. Don't you realize that God is holding out on you? He's made you deficient and in that moment he begins to undermine their perception of God, that God is not trustworthy, that God is not for them and then and only then does the fruit become attractive. Well, herein, again, our enemy does the same thing to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, what did God just tell him? This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. If that's true, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. Eat something. And then I'll know that you really are who you say you are. And then you'll know that God wasn't lying to you. And Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows that the enemy is trying to make him question the father's trustworthiness, to begin to fracture their relationship. And so instead of simply brushing it off and using his own authority to do it, Jesus points to scripture. He uses that as his shield to go into battle. And so we read in verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, and now he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Man shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He uses Scripture as the, as the sword in order to defend himself from the attacks of the enemy. And when we talk about the spiritual armor of God, it is the word of God that is given to us as our sword in order to be able to defend ourselves so that we can stand against the attacks of the enemy. We see Jesus doing it in this moment. But Satan doesn't give up. He's tenacious. And if that one doesn't work, well, Satan knows how to play the same game. All right, Jesus, you're going to use God's word against me? Well, I know God's word too. I've spent a little bit of time studying it. I can use it against you as well. And so now Satan, the devil, takes him up to the holy city and he has him stand at the highest point on the temple, verse 6. And he says once again, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. Because, as the psalmist said, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What you got, Jesus? I know the Bible too. But Jesus understands something about what Satan's doing. He understands that anybody can take a passage out of its context and twist it to their own ends. And that's precisely what he's doing. And he doesn't recognize the whole scope of Scripture that is spoken directly against what he's suggesting. And so Jesus once again points to Deuteronomy. In his response, he says, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Come on, Satan, you can do better than this. Satan begins to realize that maybe questioning Jesus' identity isn't going to work. That Jesus is secure enough in his trust in the Father that he's not going to take the bait here. So then he begins to change tactics. And this time he takes Jesus up to the top of a mountain and he begins to point to all of the land around, all of the people, kind of suggesting that he's Taking, he's saying, Jesus, take in the scope of the entire world, all of the kingdoms of men, all of these people who have been marked by sin. In verse 9, he said, All of this, Jesus, I will give you if you will simply bow down and worship me. All of these things, because he knows, Jesus, I can't get you to question your identity. Fine. So let's talk about your purpose. You came here to redeem mankind, right? You came here to overthrow sin and death. Is that what you're here for? Great. Tell you what, I will give you all of them. All you need to do is bend the knee to me. You can have what you came to do without the cross. Success without suffering. When you think about it, if you just think for a moment about how painful this cross was, not just from a physical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, where Jesus is literally separated from the Father. You understand the anguish that he went through to the point where Jesus was begging God in the Garden of, Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, please, if there's any way we can do this other than me having to go to the cross, let's do it that way. You can begin to understand why the enemy thought that this tactic would work. And yet, once again, Jesus points to Scripture as his defense against this suggestion. Verse 10. Jesus said, get away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You got no authority. You have no power. Leave me alone. And Satan does leave. He leaves Jesus alone for a time until he can come up with his next tactic, which ultimately lead to the cross when he thought that it was his greatest victory. And in fact, it was his greatest defeat. 
But Satan wasn't finished with Jesus. He was just finished for that moment. What I want us to recognize as we read through that passage is that Jesus could have rested on his own authority. He could have said no and just left it at that. He could have used his own words, but instead he used his father's words as his defense. And if Jesus recognized the need to have hidden God's word in his heart and recognized the need to orient his life according to God's word, then we who have been created in God's image, we who are called by Christ's name to be his followers, not just simply to pray a prayer, but to follow him, we probably need to follow suit. We probably need to recognize the importance of God's word in our own lives as a a sextant that helps us orient our lives around our triune God. Okay? Of course, this then begs the question, well, how? How do we do this? How are we supposed to actually orient? How how do we use this? If, you know, because I'll be honest with you, this is a really cool tool but I don't have the slightest clue. If I, I could tell you how it works, but if I were to go out on the ship right now and put this up, I wouldn't have the slightest clue how to actually make this happen. I would hope that Don would be nearby. Or I would ask Siri to tell me what I just figured out, right? Like, all right, Siri, where am I really? Oh, that's what that means. And in the same way, when we look at Scripture, how do we actually use it in our lives? How can this spiritual sextant help us make sense of our holy God in our reality. Now, obviously, in in the short time that we've got together this morning, I don't have enough time to go exhaustively. And in in the coming months, we will spend, we'll come back here, we'll, we'll circle back, and we will spend a little bit more time really focusing on how we can use this tool of ours correctly. Today, I'm just going to give you three perspectives on this spiritual sextant that God has given us. Perspective number one. We need to recognize it for what it is and what it is not. Because when a sailor goes on a ship and they pull out their sextant, they understand as they're looking through it at the horizon and the North Star, they recognize that their sextant is not their North Star. It's simply a tool to bring the North Star down to the horizon so that they can begin to navigate by it, right? And in the same way, we need to recognize that this is not our God. This is not our North Star. This is simply a tool that helps us to get access to our Father God, to begin to understand his heart. And if we lose sight of that, if we begin to start worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Scripture, as opposed to Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. Because we will take our eyes off of our Father and we'll begin to place it onto a book. And despite the fact that this is living and active and these are the God-breathed words of our Creator, we can begin to make this our God. And we see this happening with the Pharisees. Here were men who had hidden this word in their hearts. By the age of 14, young men who had gone to Pharisee school would have memorized the entire Old Testament, every single word on every single page, memorized. Had they hidden God's word in their heart? Absolutely. Did they know it intellectually? Did they know it? Not necessarily. And because of that, because they knew the the letter, they missed the heart. When their Messiah showed up, they completely missed him. So we need to recognize that this points to our God, but this is not our God. And we need to recognize the one whom it points to and worship him. Secondly, flows directly out of that. We need to recognize that it is not enough simply to have 
this word. We need to actually act upon it. The, the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart, God. I have, I have spent time with it so that it will actually affect my reality, my actions, my lifestyle. Because it's really easy. You know, it, 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 it's, it's easy to take a sextant with you. But if it's going to have any bearing whatsoever on your life, you actually have to pull it out of the box, point it towards the horizon, take your readings, and then actually follow them. Orient your life around them. Otherwise, you might as well leave it in the box, right? And I have to say with this, it is imperative that we don't simply hide the knowledge of his word in our heads. Oh, I know lots of scripture. I can quote to you whole passages But if we don't act on it, if we don't allow it to actually begin to transform our lives, then we run into the same danger of Satan who knows Scripture but completely disregards it and isn't shaped by it. Knowledge without actual action will not lead to transformation. So there's a story I ran across about a a prince of Granada. I don't know what he did but he found himself thrown into a dungeon that nobody ever came out of alive. It was a dank, dark cellar that he was thrown into and they threw away the key. And while he was there, they gave him one book to read, the Bible. For 33 years, that Bible was his closest companion. He was reading it constantly, memorizing large portions of it. He must have read through it hundreds of times in the 33 years that he was imprisoned in that place. And when he finally died after 33 years, they carted his body out and they began to clean out the cellar. They saw that he had written notes to himself all over the walls of his cell. Here are a few examples of the notes that he wrote. Psalm 118.8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 has all the letters in the alphabet, except J. Esther 8.9 is the longest verse in the Bible. 33 years of reading God's word. 33 years of steeping himself in this, and all he collected was trivia. It does us no good to have a Bible It does us no good to read the Bible if we are not actually going to act upon what we read. And so James says, don't merely read the word and so deceive yourselves. Actually do what it says. Jesus put it a slightly different way. He said, if you obey my commands, then you're my disciples. And then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you obey my commandments, then you're my disciples. Not before. We become his disciples, his followers, when we actually allow this to begin shaping our our lives and we begin to act upon it. Until then, it's a nice coffee table book. May we allow God's word to shape our lives. May we actually act upon the information that we read rather than simply trying to garner more information. Thirdly, We need to allow God's word 
to shape our circumstances rather than expecting our, or rather than allowing our circumstances to shape our interpretation of God's word. Because for a sailor to pull a sextant out, point it to the horizon, line up the stars, and look at the reading and go, ooh, that's not the direction we're going, and then change the reading so that it does reflect the direction they're going, that would be utter foolishness, wouldn't it? You would look at that person and go, I don't want you to help us direct ourselves because we want to we submit to the stars as opposed to submitting to where we're already going and making the stars try to align with us. And in the same way, far too often we as Christ followers approach God's word simply as a means to an end. I'm not going to break this thing. God willing. I might. All right, Darlene. And in the same way, how often do we read God's word or how easy is it to read God's word with one thought in mind? Well, this is what I think. Where can I find a passage to support what I already think? Right? I want to go this way. I want to do that. I want that job. God, show me the verse that can support that. I want a relationship with her. Yeah, I know I'm already married. But I want a relationship with her, so I'm just going to do it. And then I go to a passage like, I don't know, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And I go, see, God's got a plan for me, and this is what I want. So this is part of his plan, so he's going to bless it. And it may be diametrically opposed to God's heart, but I can find a verse if I am willing to tear it out of its context and start wielding it like a baton to try to get people to submit to my perspective. I can make the Bible support any perspective I want if I am willing to simply tear it out of its context. Take Jeremiah 29, 11, for instance. That is a verse that many of us have memorized. Probably some of us have pasted up all over our house. But have you ever thought about the fact that, that is a, those are words that God spoke to the Israelites while they were estranged from the promised land. They found themselves in captivity in a foreign land and they had lost hope that God was ever going to redeem them. And in the midst of that, he says, listen, I haven't forgotten about you. I know the plans that I have for you and they're plans to prosper you and not to condemn you. So do not grow weary or lose heart. And we love that verse because that's a nice promise and we rip it out of its context and ascribe it to our own lives when in fact it, may, it has nothing to do with us in the first place. Now, does it speak into our lives? Sure. Because we have a Father God who, who uses the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives, and sometimes he takes one of those passages and goes, pay attention because I'm saying the same thing to you right now. Sometimes. But we need to be really cautious. Because if we are not careful, we can easily rip verses or even passages out of their context to support whatever we want. And in that moment, we have shifted our sextant not to get get the right bearing, but only to match where we want to go. We are not trusting in him with all of our hearts. We are leaning on our own understanding in that moment. We're not submitting to him. And so I can promise you that your path will not be nearly as straight as he would like to make it. So how do we protect ourselves from doing that? Well, I can't tell you the amount of times in a Bible study where we'll be reading a passage and the first question that people want to ask is this, what does this mean to me? Right? It's the most natural question. What bearing does this have on my life? It's a wonderful question. It's not a bad question. 
It's just bad timing. You see, the first question that we need to ask before we ask, what does this mean to me, is what did this mean? What was this saying to the original audience within their original context? If we understood Jeremiah 29, 11 and the surrounding passage that way, we understood what God was saying to the Israelites in the circumstances that they found themselves in. Now we can then ask the second follow-up question. Okay? Well, God, what would you say to me in light of that? Do you see how that begins to change it? And also, it's not just our historical context we need to know. Basically, who was being written to, the circumstances that were going on, and the person writing to them, and the reasons for writing. It's not just that. We need to take into consideration the scope of God's word. We can't just take a verse out of its context of the the chapter it's in, or even the book it's in. We need to read it in light of all of it. Otherwise... Otherwise, we are very likely to run, the same, to run into the same issues that Satan did, with, with much, much better motives, obviously. But we will do the same thing that Satan did. We will twist God's word to support what we want, rather than allowing it to shape and direct what he wants. Make sense? Okay. So here's the point this morning. And I'm just going to read this because, dag nabbit, I'm going to read it. The Bible is our spiritual sextant. It is a God-breathed, God-given tool that he uses to, to bring our triune God, our North Star, onto the horizon to help us locate ourselves within time and space. It spells out for us, sometimes in direct commands, but more often through overarching principles, what it means to live as a follower of Christ. It reveals where we are, sometimes with some painful precision, as it convicts us of sin. And it points us to where we need to go by showing us the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who modeled for us a character that we are called to pursue, the behaviors that we need to avoid, the habits that we need to develop, and it reminds us of our ultimate destination, that this is not our home, that we are strangers passing through. We are also called to be ambassadors as we live in a world that is ultimately not our home. And it reminds us that there will come a day when the brokenness of this world and the things that we have to wrestle with and the hearts and and, and the things that we have to struggle against and the flesh that so easily entangles us, all of those things will be silenced and they will not get the last word. He does. So it gives us hope in the midst of the exhausting lives, the sometimes disheartening lives. It gives us hope to keep on keeping on and continue to follow him. And so as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, all scripture, all of it, not just the parts in the New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed, is inspired by our Father God, and all of it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training up young men and women in righteousness so that we, men and women of God, may be thoroughly equipped to do the work he's called us to do. This is a tool we must get used to because this, this is the tool that helps bring our triune God down into our reality so that we can actually begin to orient our lives around him. So here's a challenge I want to leave you with this weekend as I invite the worship team to come forward. This week I want to challenge you to spend at minimum 15 minutes each day spending some time in God's Word. Now, some of you are already doing far more than that. 
in the past when Egypt is spoken, he would give us an hour each day. So, you know, feel thankful that I'm up here. Unless you want to do an hour. If you want to take the Egypt challenge, you want to look like him, spiritually buff, then you can do that. For at least 15 minutes each day, I want to challenge you to spend some time in God's word. But before you dive into it, I want you to pray this prayer or some derivative of it because there's no magic way of articulating this. This is just a recognition. God, this is your word which reveals your heart to me. So would you show me your heart in what I'm about to read and give me the ears to hear whatever it is you want to say to me? In other words, God, show me who you are and show me who I am and what you're calling me to in light of who you are. And then begin to read. And allow him to begin to shape you through this tool that he has given us to do so. Alright? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you so much that you did not simply wind up the world like a clockmaker and then step back to watch it spin out of control. I thank you that you stay actively involved in our lives, that you love us intimately. And I thank you that you have given us a tool, many tools, but this is one of them to help us know your heart and to begin to be shaped to, to reflect your heart. So we ask that you would speak to us, that you would guide us this week. And if we don't have some place to go, I would suggest maybe going to the book of John and just starting, starting to read through there. Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to emulate your life. So would you have your way in us? Would you use us as ambassadors of you? Jesus, in your holy name, amen.